Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Building and maintaining a successful band is a lot like building and maintaining a sports team. You struggle and wheel and deal and trade and sometimes steal to put together just the right lineup. And it's not just about sound and talent. It's chemistry, it's leadership, stamina, all those intangible things that go into making the whole greater than the sum of its parts. The perils are the same too. Your star quarterback goes down. That guy on the second line has tons of talent, but he's a cancer in the dressing room. The person you thought was healthy and strong turns out to have some kind of issue that's just getting worse and worse. Or somebody just might die on you. And when everything goes pear-shaped, you have two choices. Give it all up, call it a day, or you rebuild. With a sports team, there are enough players out there that you can find a replacement, a trade, some cash, a draft pick, a free agent, and you're back in business. Or maybe someone on the team steps up and unexpectedly fills that hole with talent and leadership. The same kind of thing can happen with a band, too, but not always. When a star departs, especially a lead singer and front person, that can create a fatal vacancy that can never be filled. So the band breaks up. Sometimes. Not always. Sometimes. Here's a study of groups who ended up changing their front person and actually survived. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and if you're any kind of manager, the kind of person in charge of a team or a staff, you've probably gone through the agony of one of your star performers leaving. Your first reaction is to get mad or, or maybe panic. What are we going to do now? But after a while, you begin to think, okay, hang on, I can handle this, no problem. Just assess the situation, let's weigh the options, and move forward. What are the choices there? If you've been in a band, you might have gone through the same sort of crisis. The worst sort is if the front person, that face, that voice of your band, leaves for whatever reason. If the band is going to continue, a complex transplant is required. And then you got to do everything you can to make sure this new organ isn't rejected and that it grows and thrives and makes everybody forget that it's a replacement park. Okay, I think that's, that's probably enough for all the tortured metaphors. Let's get to some examples. You're probably making a list of all the bands who have survived a change of front person in your head already. Brian Johnson taking over from Bond Scott and ACDC. Sammy Hagar being drafted in to replace David Lee Roth and Van Halen. How many people subbed in for Ozzy and Black Sabbath back in the 80s? How many guys have sung for Deep Purple? Journey, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, Genesis, yes, Queen. They've all undergone changes of singers, sometimes more than once. And all those bands are still with us. But what about in the world of alt-rock? Let's examine that with a series of before and after comparisons, starting with one of the most profound and successful makeovers in the history of music. When Joy Division was around in the late 1970s, they were a highly regarded English indie band with zero money. They were, uh, to put it the British way, skint. It wasn't until years later that people recognized them for the groundbreaking band they were. Joy Division is now legendary, one of the most influential bands in the entire history of alt-rock. But they might have eventually broken through while they were still together. It looked like they were on the verge of something. But then singer Ian Curtis killed himself. 
It was May 18, 1980. He was just 23. Ian had been suffering from severe depression, epilepsy, and all manner of substance abuse problems related to his illnesses. He'd been suicidal for a while, tried to kill himself at least once before. But despite recovering from that, things just kept getting worse for him, compounded by all sorts of marital problems. The day before Joy Division was supposed to leave for their first ever tour of North America, Ian stayed up all night watching TV, listening to music, drinking whiskey, and drinking coffee. And then he hanged himself in his kitchen, using a length of clothesline. His wife Deborah found him in the morning. And then a few weeks later, this single was released. Joy Division and Love Will Tear Us Apart from June 1980, released a couple of weeks after singing Ian Curtis committed suicide. The other three members of the band were naturally, of course, devastated. And they had all made a pact. Should any member leave for any reason, the band would automatically self-destruct. So there was no question that Joy Division was done. But that did not mean that the survivors couldn't create something new together. Bernard Sumner, Peter Hook, and Stephen Morris had many discussions about what to do. They've been encouraged with the progress they've made as Joy Division over the past year, so why throw all that away? Yes, there would be a cloud over whatever they would do next. Nothing they could do about that. But they had to move forward. What other option did they have? All right, fine, they'd do it under a new name. Their manager, a guy named Rob Gretton, is the one who came up with it. He found the name in a newspaper headline about the mass killings in Pol Pot's Cambodia. The phrase was New Order. Okay, a name. But who would sing? Well, rehearsals started with each member taking a turn on lead vocals. And in the end, it was Bernard Sumner. He just had to learn to sing and play guitar at the same time, something that he had had to do. To fill out the sound, Stephen's girlfriend, Gillian Gilbert, was brought in to play some keyboards. At first, New Order sounded a lot like Joy Division. But a trip to New York changed everything. This was the era of post-disco music, early house, and electro. They became besotted with things like synthesizers and drum machines and sequencers. And by 1982, New Order had moved away from the guitar-based material that Joy Division had become famous for into something more electronic and dancey, all with Bernard out front. The result was that New Order became extremely influential in the history of alt-rock in a different style than what made Joy Division what they were. I'd say that they made the transition in front person work out very well. Wouldn't you? New Order, which descended from Joy Division. Same three people one of whom stepped up to be the new singer. And New Order is still with us today, and Bernard Sumner is still singing for the band today. Faith No More began as a band called Sharp Young Men in 1979. By 1983, they had changed their name and had brought in a singer named Chuck Mosley. He replaced a woman named Courtney Love, yes, her, who was part of the group for about 15 minutes. Mosley was the front person for the band's first two albums. The first was an indie record called We Care A Lot in 1985, and the second was on a slightly bigger label entitled Introduce Yourself in 1987. This song appeared on both. We care a lot, we care a lot. 
There's Faith No More from 1987 with We Care A Lot, featuring singer Chuck Mosley. And yeah, things were going all right for the band. But Mosley was getting more and more weird. He got into fights with other members of the band, sometimes on stage in the middle of a gig. Mosley had his own roadies, and they got into fights with the other roadies working for the group. Then there was the time he fell asleep on stage. And then he got it into his head that all the band should do is acoustic-based songs. And that's when everybody around him, in Faith No More, had no more faith. They quit. That left Chuck alone, so he quit. But then everyone else reconvened without him. And this is where Mike Patton enters the picture. Mike was in his own group called Mr. Bungle and had met Faith No More sometime in 1986. After the Mosley fiasco, he was approached to become the lead singer, and by January 1989, he was in. Mike then went away for two weeks and wrote all the lyrics for the next album. That record was released in June 1989 and ended up being nominated for some Grammys. And within a year, Faith No More was all over the video channels and were on their way to becoming one of the biggest early successes of the alternative 90s. There's the version of Faith No More that everybody knows, the one featuring singer Mike Patton, a replacement for Chuck Mosley. Again, pretty good trade. In the case of both the Joy Division New Order Transformation and the Switch Up in Faith No More, these groups were not exactly established names at that time. You know, they were still pretty early in their careers. But what about a band with a platinum album pedigree? How do you replace a frontman in that situation? That's where we'll go next, with another before and after comparison involving a band whose singer drugged himself to death. This is a look at alt-rock bands that have survived a change of front person. Making that kind of switch earlier in your career is definitely traumatic, but it's doable. But what about if you've already reached multi-platinum success? Can you continue with a new guy out front or a new woman out front? Again, it has been done. It's not easy. But it can be accomplished. ACDC, Black Sabbath, Van Halen, we talked about this earlier. And we can also put Allison Chains in this category. The original guy, of course, was Lane Staley. He wasn't a founder of the band. That was guitarist Jerry Cantrell and drummer Sean Kinney. But he was drafted in early from another band, a glam group called Sleaze, for whom he played drums. Now, Sleaze was eventually renamed Alice in Chains, while Lane was living with a homeless Jerry Cantrell at their rehearsal space. When Lane's band broke up, he joined a funk outfit while Cantrell had his own thing going on. Long story short, and it's a very convoluted story, both of these bands broke up and Cantrell and Sean Kinney asked Lane to be a vocalist for this new group and they took the name of Lane's old band for good measure. The original Alice in Chains was more Van Halen and Motley Crue than grunge, but then when everybody realized what was going on around them in Seattle, there was a change of image and a couple of sound tweaks. And that was a really good move because that's when everything tweaked. The thing that really made Allison Chains work was Lane's voice and the way he harmonized with Jerry Cantrell. Best hard rock harmony since, I don't know, David Lee Roth and Michael Anthony in the first version of Van Halen. In some cases, we heard what amounted to dual lead vocals that strategically overlapped through songs. Technically, the two voices were separated by a major third, with Lane having the more powerful of the two deliveries. 
He could deliver lyrics in a menacing monotone, but then quickly explode into something sharp and cutting. He had a great scream, too. And those vocals appeal to both metal fans and alternative kids. And let's not forget that Alice in Chains had some awesome melodies. Let's hear an example of what I'm talking about. This song is only two and a half minutes long, but it encapsulates everything I just described. Great stuff from Alice in Chains with Lane Staley on lead vocals and close harmonies from guitarist Jerry Cantrell. This all worked great until sometime in 1995 when Lane's drug habit really got out of control. From 1996 on, we almost never saw him. His last performance with the band was on July 3rd, 1996 in Kansas City when Alice in Chains was touring with Kiss. Lane turned into an irreparable junkie barricading himself in his Seattle condo where he painted, played video games, and had all his drugs delivered to the door. Meanwhile, the band was absolutely, completely, and utterly paralyzed. They couldn't do anything without their frontman. Lane was eventually found dead when his parents called the cops to break into his place after not hearing from him for two weeks. That was April 19, 2002. The coroner said he died two weeks earlier on April the 5th. A needle was still hanging from his arm when they found him. That should have been it for Alice in Chains. They hadn't toured in years. There were only so many greatest hits records that could be released. And in 2004, they were dropped from the record label after 15 years. So done and done, right? Well, no. In 2005, drummer Sean Kinney came up with the idea of reuniting the band for a benefit concert for the victims of the tsunami that hit Thailand, Indonesia, and other places in Southeast Asia. That seemed to go over well. There was another show in March 2006, and that went fine. One of the guest vocalists that evening was a guy named William Duval, the singer with a group called Comes With The Fall. They'd known William for five or six years, had a lot of respect for his abilities, and toyed with the idea of having him join Alice in Chains full-time. Meanwhile, though, there were a lot of other candidates. There was a guy named Vinny Dombrowski from a Detroit band called Sponge. He was invited for rehearsals, but he didn't fit. Scott Weiland was still an ex-Stone Temple pilot at this time, but bringing him in would just mean trading one junkie for another. So they kept coming back to Duval, mainly because he didn't try to be a Lane clone. He sounded close enough to Lane without being exactly like him. Duval's integration to the band was a slow process. A gig here, gig there. But by late 2008, everyone was willing to give things a shot. And so on September 29th, 2009, a few weeks short of 14 years since the last Alice in Chains album, came a record entitled Black Gives Way to Blue. And you know something? It worked, and the record went gold in both the U.S. and Canada. Alice in Chains with William Duvall on lead vocals, replacing the long-dead Lane Staley. This version has now released as many full albums with Duval as they had with Lane. Rage Against the Machine had similar frontman problems, except their guy wasn't a junkie trying to kill himself. Rage exploded in 1992 with the self-titled debut album that ranks as one of the best ever first tries in the history of rock. 
But singer Zach De La Roca was always the square peg in a band full of round holes, if you know what I mean. While everyone else in the band was political and had definite activist streaks, Zach was exponentially more passionate in that direction. Things came to a head on October 18th, 2000, when he just quit the band. I quote, It was necessary to leave Rage because our decision-making process has completely failed. It is no longer meeting the aspirations of all four of us collectively as a band, and from my perspective, has undermined our artistic and political ideal. That's a, a, a much more complicated way of saying political and creative differences have caused me to quit. And it wasn't just politics. They were fighting over everything, right down to what color their merch t-shirts should be. So that was it for Rage. Or was it? Let's hear something with Zach before we pick up the rest of the story. And it has some really weird twists. This is People of the Sun. So, Zach De La Roca leaves Rage Against the Machine in the fall of 2000. He has this idea of going solo. Okay, fine. But what do the other three guys do? Do they break up and call it a day? Well, no. They were happy. They wanted to stick together. But to do what? For a brief moment, it looked like they were going to be hired to be, wait for it, the backing band for Ozzy Osbourne. No kidding. Another suggestion was that they go to work for soul singer Macy Gray. But what about staying together as Rage and just drafting in another singer? Risky, but maybe worth a shot. There were rumors that Lane Staley was approached, but that's not true. He was way too much of a junkie by this time to take on any new work. It is true, however, that Be Real of Cypress Hill tried out. He sounded a little too much like Zach. Uh, maybe not somebody who raps, they thought. Interesting that Be Real is now in Prophets of Rage with the other Rage guys and Chuck D of Public Enemy. At some point in 2001, producer Rick Rubin said, you know, Soundgarden isn't getting back together. Chris Cornell's solo work is okay, but it hasn't gained him any traction. Why not ask him if he wants to join forces? A meeting was set up in May of 2001, and the chemistry was instant. What was supposed to be a one- or two-day jam session turned into 19 days in which they wrote 21 songs. Now, at this point... The band was still going to be called Rage Against the Machine. In fact, I have a bootleg CD in my collection entitled Rage Against the Machine featuring Chris Cornell. But Cornell's style was so different from the original Rage sound that everybody quickly had second thoughts. But that's when somebody came up with the idea of calling the new band Civilian. But for some reason, I seem to recall that some other band had dibs on that name, they decided to go with Audio Slave. But there was already a band from Liverpool with that name. A quick $30,000 payment to the English group solved that problem. The first Audio Slave performance was on November 25th, 2002, and the gig was in a weird spot. They played on top of the marquee on the Ed Sullivan Theater as part of an appearance on The Late Show with David Letterman.
Audio Slave, which, let's be honest, is really Rage Against the Machine with a big Chris Cornell makeover. They lasted three albums over six years before they broke up. And then there was a Rage reunion with Zach, something that has persisted off and on since 2007. And then there's Prophets of Rage, of course, which could be looked at as yet another iteration of Rage Against the Machine with Chuck D and Be Real in place of Zach. This program is all about alt-rock bands who had to make a change at the frontman position and survived. We cannot leave this topic without talking about the Stone Temple Pilots. This is a group that knows what it's like to deal with singer problems. They first came together in San Diego under the name Mighty Joe Young. They were the DeLeo brothers, Dean and Robert, drummer Eric Krentz, and singer Scott Weiland. Despite Weiland's drug problems and his alcohol issues, and his various criminal convictions, and assorted time in jail and rehab, this lineup stuck together until 1998. Then there was a hiatus, a break designed to get Wyland clean. At that point, the other three quarters of STP formed a new project called Talk Show with a singer named David Coots, which did not work out very well, and STP was soon back together in its original form. Four more tumultuous years followed, and then the band broke up in 2002. And that's as deep as I'm going to get with this part of the story, because once you start, it goes on forever. I recommend downloading the ongoing history of new music shows on Scott Weiland to get all the details to fill in the gaps. Let's just say this. Weiland went on to join Velvet Revolver as their singer between 2004 and 2008. In that time, Velvet Revolver released two albums before Weiland either quit or was fired. We're not really sure. In any event, that was definitely the end of Velvet Revolver because despite trying and trying and trying, they couldn't find a replacement for Wyland. This led to another STP reunion that made it all the way to 2013. Wyland was still out of control, so he was fired on February 27th of 2013. And of course, from there, Wyland spiraled into oblivion before his drug abuse caught up with him and he died in the back of a tour bus on December 3rd, 2015. So let's just stop here and acknowledge the brilliance of STP with Scott Wyland on front. When STP fired Scott Wyland at the end of February 2013, they retained the rights to the name, knowing full well that they wanted to continue with a singer who wouldn't let them down. In May of that year, they announced that Chester Bennington of Lincoln Park was the new guy, and as a full-time member, too. That arrangement lasted about 18 months, during which time the band toured extensively and released one five-track EP. Chester left the group amicably on November 9, 2015, to go back to Lincoln Park. The idea was, at the time that after the next Linkin Park project was complete, he would return to STP. But then we all know what happened next. Chester committed suicide on July 20th of 2017. But STP was still determined to continue. A very, very long series of auditions ensued. They ran from February 2016 and didn't end until November 14th, 2017. The new guy was Jeff Gutt, a former member of a new metal band called Dry Cell, and, get this, a former contestant on the TV talent show X Factor. He was on the show for two seasons, ultimately finishing in second place in 2013. Jeff is now the guy with STP. And on March 16th, 2018, Stone Temple Pods version, what is this, three, four, 
release date self-titled album. And this was the first single to feature Jeff. Stone Temple Pilots with, depending on how you want to count things, their fourth lead singer. Let's see, there was Scott Weiland, a diversion with Talk Show featuring David Coots, uh, back to Scott Weiland, then Chester Bennington, and now Jeff Goot. Try, try again, right? The toughest person to replace in any lineup is the singer. Losing that guy or that woman can be a death blow. But as we've seen, it is possible to overcome that challenge. It's not something you'd want to wish on any group, but hey, it's rock and roll. Anything can happen. If you want more of this sort of thing, artist profiles, stories from the world of music, explorations of music tech, make sure you subscribe to the Ongoing History Podcast. They're all free. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of them, and new stuff is being posted every week. Please rate and review when you get a chance, okay? That really, really helps us. I can also be found on my website, which is ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated every day and comes with a free newsletter. You should subscribe to that, too, because you will be totally in the know with what's happening in music every day. You can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I'm uh, really good with email, alan at alancross.ca. In other words, there are many ways that we can connect, and we should. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. Talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.